Thank you all for coming. Um, as you said, we're going to talk about some famous experiments in neuroscience that were done in the 80s. And they've been developed and replicated and perfected over the last 30 years. Um, but they're changing. But I'm basically going to start talking um, with one particular experiment that were done in the mid-80s by Benjamin Libet's um, lab. Um, so I'll get started. Um, I hope everyone is prepared. Um, a few questions. Can everyone hear me okay? Right? Okay. Good. Um, so today, let's get this back a bit. Today I'm going to defend um, a traditional understanding of free will against some, and that some qualifier is very important. Um, neuroscientists and philosophers who've argued that there's neuroscientific evidence for showing that human beings don't have free will. It's not all of them, it's just some specific philosophers and neuroscientists. So it's important to make that distinction, because I do think that philosophy and neuroscience are indispensable disciplines for us thinking about human beings, including features of human beings like free will. So my critique is not a critique against philosophy and neuroscience as such, Rather, it's a critique against some very specific, what I think to be mistaken positions in neuroscience and philosophy that think that humans don't have free will. Some fundamental questions to ask before we um, get into this topic to be thinking about throughout here is about um, whose philosophical conception of free will? There's not just a concept of free will, but there are a lot of different rival concepts of free will. And we need to think about which interpretations of the neuroscience are relevant for some of these conflicts. So the question, whose philosophical concept of free will? One of the questions we might ask is a historical one. When did humans first start thinking about their voluntary actions, about their ethical actions? When did they start thinking that in order to be ethical, to be moral, to seek the good, they had to have a concept of free will? Asking the question historically can be a bit surprising. Um, depending on the context we come from, we might think that it's obvious that humans have free will. You might think that humans have always thought that they had free will. So it's a bit surprised when we look at, in at least the Western context, at the historical texts on ethics by Plato and Aristotle. Plato and Aristotle wrote a great deal about, free, about ethics, about the good, about human conflicts where they want to do the right thing or what they think is the good thing, but for their desires seem to pull them in the other direction. For all of their profound writing about ethics and human conflicts and psychology, it's surprising that neither Plato and Aristotle have a systematic theoretical concept of free will. The concept of free will is still debated by historians of when it comes about, but it seems that Epictetus and some of the, the Stoic philosophers, or perhaps St. Augustine, are among some of the earliest thinkers to not just talk about voluntary action, which we find in Plato and Aristotle, but specifically free will as a special ability or power. So it's curious that humans haven't always actually thought about free will. It's not something so obvious. So what were Plato and Aristotle talking about that they failed to think about free will? And how is it these other authors later on came about it? So it's just important to look at the history. It's not always been obvious to all humans that we have a power called free will. 
So we have to ask the question, what is that power of free will? And we have to be aware of some of these rival and incompatible conceptions. Now, these are going to be a lot of philosophical debates, and we're not going to look at them, but there's a lot of different philosophical and theological views about what free will is. A basic kind of simple way we can think about the difference is freedom and free will, liberty or freedom to do the good, so you're as free as you are insofar as you can do the good. What makes you more free is when you're more perfect and you're morally able to do the good and don't find desirable to do things that are irrational and you don't act on these irrational desires or you don't find yourself in conflict that sometimes you know it's the right thing to do but yet you're pulled in the wrong direction. That's a particular concept of free will. So freedom is all about being for the good. But there's also a very well-known rival concept about free will, which is what freedom is, is fundamentally about liberty from the good. So someone is free if they could choose not to do the good, even if they know it's the good thing to do. And so a type of liberty or perfection of liberty is being able to do things that are irrational. And that's a real good sign that someone is free, is that they can do irrational things, or they could do things that conflict with what they think the good is. I'm not going to tonight adjudicate between these two different philosophical views where free will is freedom for the good or free will is freedom to do what's not good, even if you know what's good. But those are two different views. There are a lot of other views as well. But when we look at the neuroscience of free will, we want to ask a question about which concept of free will is operationalized in their experiments. So if you're going to do an experiment in free will, you need to have a concept of free will in mind that you're going to try to find a way to put it into an experiment, to quantify it, in other words, to operationalize it, to find a measurable way of testing some concept. If you're going to work on narrative or on person, personality or on emotion, you need to find a concept of emotion you can put into an experiment. Well, similarly, neuroscientists had to have some concept of free will in mind that they operationalized in these experiments. So what is that concept? And we might ask, once we've identified that concept of free will, is that the most reasonable or the most accurate concept of free will? So my talk tonight is going to have three parts. First, I'm going to briefly introduce a few of the certain claims that major figures have made in terms of neuroscience skepticism about free will. So claims that we don't have free will or free will is an illusion just to show you some of the big names that have endorsed this claim, but I'm also going to show you that it's not necessarily a majority opinion either, that there are a lot of different neuroscientists and philosophers who don't think neuroscience has shown us that we don't have free will. And then I'm going to zoom in and um, look at some particular experiments. I didn't set out a waiver form ahead of time, so I hope no one has any objections to participating in a kind of thought experiment. Um, no one should be harmed in this. But um, if you really don't want to, we're not going to force you against your will to participate in the experiment, but there will be an experiment later on, just so you know. And then we're going to analyze the concept of free will used in this experiment, these libid-style experiments. And we're going to ask, is this a very good concept of free will? And on my analysis, it's going to look like libid conceptualized free will that's more along an accurate description of inhibiting a sneeze rather than a paradigmatic case of what we might call a voluntary action. So first, 
let's look at some statements that have been made about neuroscience and free will skepticism. The first point we should make is that it didn't take the discovery or the developments of neuroscience and cognitive neuroscience in the late 20th century to teach us that the brain is somehow relevant to our psychology. So it shouldn't be news to anyone, certainly not news that was recent in the last century or two, that the brain is somehow relevant to psychology. This is not something that was recently discovered. In fact, it goes all the way back, if not longer, to the Hippocratic writings from around the fifth century um, BC. This is a famous quote from the Hippocratic writings, um, one particular treatise called On the Sacred Disease, which was about epileptic fits and whether or not epileptic fits were inspired by the gods, whether they happened due to physiological reasons, what exactly is the cause of these. And in the Hippocratic writings, we have this quote. We ought to know that from nothing else but thence come joys, delights, laughter and sports, sorrows, griefs, despondency and lamentations. And by this in a special manner, we acquire wisdom and knowledge and see and hear and know what are foul and what are fair, what are bad and what are good, what are sweet and unsavory. So in other words, the spectrum of psychological experiences human beings have. And what do they say? All these things we endure from the brain. So already early on, in the 5th century BC, 2,500 years ago, the earliest sort of scientific reflections about human psychology were already thinking the brain was relevant. It doesn't mean the brain tells the whole story. It doesn't mean the brain explains all of these things completely. But it's been a long long known truth about human experience that the brain in some way is relevant to our psychology. As a recent book, and if you're interested in more of the detailed literature about some of the neuroscience, I apologize this is a book in English, but um, this book is a short one by Alfred Mealy called Free, where he just goes through a nice short treatment of a lot of the psychological literature and neuroscience literature and philosophers and engages the question in more detail than I'm gonna be able to do tonight. But he says in this book, almost everyone who believes in free will believes the brain plays an indispensable role in generating decisions. If a soul is involved, it works through the brain somehow. The challenge that neuroscience supposedly poses to free will, that it can't be based simply on the idea that brains are at work in decision-making. So both a really old quote and a really recent quote just saying the brain is involved is not sort of a surprise for us. So there has to be something more substantive. One of the skeptics of, neuros, of, of free will based on neuroscience is the famous neuroscientist Michael Gonzaga, who was the one who coined the phrase cognitive neuroscience a decade before I was born. He writes in his book, Who's in Charge?, which were based on his Gifford lectures, neuroscience reveals that the concept of free will is without meaning. It's time to get over the idea of free will and move on. It's not clear exactly if we have a choice in the matter, if it's coercive, if we're just going to have to give up the thing, and how are we going to act on the basis of it. As he says, free will, and then Green and Cohen say, free will as we ordinarily understand it is an illusion. Again, if it's an illusion we can do anything about, if we can freely choose to believe in the illusion or not, these are not questions that are really subsequently followed up. So there's a lot of rhetoric in making these strong claims, but it's not really clear what exactly the implications are if you follow them through in any detail. 
um, perhaps most well-known, but also perhaps most silly, Sam Harris has said, we do not know what we intend to do until the intention itself arises. It's a really key claim that we're going to come back to. We do not know what we intend to do until the intention itself arises. To understand this is to realize that we're not the authors of our thoughts and actions and the way that people generally suppose. Did I consciously choose coffee over tea? No. The choice was made for me by events in my brain that I, as the conscious witness of my thoughts and actions, could not suspect, inspect, or influence. So should we mourn the death of free will as some of these neuroscientists, skeptics of free will? Jerry Cohen writes, what are the consequences of realizing that physical determinism negates our ability to choose freely? He says, what is seriously affected is our idea of moral responsibility, which should be discarded along with the idea of free will. So some of these scientific claims that they, or purportedly scientific claims, have enormous consequences. Consequences. This would mean not only should we question moral responsibility, we should question the legal system, the system of justice that's based upon the idea of different kinds of moral responsibility. So it's not entirely just sort of an academic, fun, curious, strange question to talk about over a glass of wine with your friends whether or not we have free will and what these neuroscientists say. These would have enormous implications for how we rethink human history, for how we think about legal responsibility, for how we think about moral responsibility and our ability to make promises about truth-telling. The ramifications are enormous. It's important to point out, however, that um, even though we should never solve philosophical problems by democracy, by voting, nevertheless, it's important to point out that this is not what most serious philosophers think is the case. Most philosophers, in fact, hold a view called compatibilism. At least um, certain kinds of analytic philosophers, of which I don't consider myself to be one, but I read a lot of analytic philosophy and I study with a lot of them. But nevertheless, analytic philosophers, almost 60%, they're going to redo this survey in about a year. But in 2009, they did a survey of 3,000 um, philosophers and 60% of them more or less said that they favored a kind of compatibilism, which is a view that free will is compatible with either determinism, if the physical universe is fundamentally deterministic, or indeterminism, if the fundamental universe is fundamentally indeterministic. And then after that, around 14% of philosophers believed in a kind of libertarian free will. And then only about 12%. I don't know if they thought they freely were doing the survey or if they thought they were compelled to do it, but they selected the choice, no free will. So. Anyhow, like I said, we're not trying to determine um, these philosophical debates by a democratic vote, but it's nevertheless of interest just to see where the reigning people in these various departments think about this. So moving on, let's look at some of the actual experiments, in particular the famous experiments Benjamin Libet ex uh, wrote about and or the experiments he did in the early 80s, published in a BBS paper in 1983, and see what the major evidence they thought um, there to be against free will. 
Now, the first thing we should try to think about is how would you do an experiment on free will? And it's, it's really hard. So even though I'm going to be critiquing these experiments of Libet, I think they're ingenious. I mean, I think they're very clever, really thoughtful experiments. But what would you do to try to test someone to see whether or not they had free will? The kind of reasoning that's going on in mind in Libet, it seems, is something what I'm going to take you through now. Libet already had one of these rival concepts of free will in mind, one that was influenced by a lot of philosophical literature. What I think Libet was thinking was that free will seems to require that our conscious volitions, our conscious intentions, these are what initiate our voluntary movements. So his idea is that before tea or coffee being chosen is someone had a conscious volition of choosing tea or a conscious intention to choose coffee. And that intention to, to have coffee, that's what moved their bodily movements to say, I'll have coffee and move their bodily movements to pick up the cup and drink it. But the question that Libet as a neuroscientist was asking was maybe our brains cause these movements before we're conscious of these volitions to move. So the question is, what happens first when I voluntarily move my hand? Is my free will first? Does my conscious volition to move my hand happen before my brain triggers my hand to move? So is the causal process, conscious volition, causes my brain, causes my finger? Or is the brain first? Does my brain trigger my hand to move before I'm conscious of the volition to move? So one alternative would be this one, where the arrows are, first I think I'm going to have tea, and then that causes my brain to either move my hand or make me say I'm going to have tea. And if that's the case, then it seems as if my conscious volition to move my hand is before my brain triggers my hand to move, and then it seems that free will would be safe. No conscious, my conscious volition is what initiates the movement in my brain and what initiates the movement of my hand. However, what happens if the brain first comes up with the, con- the intention and then I become aware of my conscious attention because my brain caused me to have the intention, choose coffee, and then my hand moves. If that's the case, then it seems as if my brain triggers my hand to move before I'm consciously in control of the volition to move my hand. And then it seems that free will is an illusion. I'm not the one having the volition that causes my brain, which causes my hand to move. Rather, my brain is making a decision. Then it's telling me about the decision it made because it's already making the hand move. So this is how Libet's thinking about free will. That's his problematic, how he has the concept of free will that he's trying to operationalize. He's trying to make a measurable way of pulling these pieces apart and testing them. So how do you design an experiment for that? Can we empirically test whether the brain initiates movement before the conscious volition to move? So Libet had already known about triggering causes what are called readiness potentials of bodily motion that can be detected in the brain up to one second before the bodily movement. So, um, in a way that we'll describe in a little bit more, but you could have a, an EEG cap on someone's head and you could detect 
um, in the supplementary motor cortex a spike in activity, a readiness potential, that occurred before flexion of a finger. So they already knew ways of detecting activity in the brain that was causally directed and related to the finger movement. And you could see the activity that happened here before the activity that happened here. As, as Libet says in this 1983 paper, this raised the question of whether conscious awareness of the voluntary urge or intention to act also appears with a such similarly advanced timings. So we need to pull apart these three different pieces. How do we detect the readiness potential in the brain, the time of the conscious volition, and the time of the bodily movements? And this is how Libet tried to pull all the three apart. First, we're going to have the readiness potential, which is detected by EEG cap. So it's detecting activity in the brain, this readiness potential in the supplementary motor cortex. Next, he says an EMG attached to the wrist that's detecting um, muscle fire, um, fiber bursts for when the finger is going to move or when a hand wrist is going to flex. But the real key point is how are you going to time that conscious volition, the thing that seems to be very subjective and difficult to set a measuring device to? And he's going to do it with this fancy, this fancy clock, which we're going to come back to in a second. So we need to track three different times. When the brain trigger to move, the time of the conscious volition to move by using this fancy clock, and then the movement in the wrist. Okay. Now, if you will volunteer, we're going to do a version of the Libet experiment, and hopefully my computer doesn't crash when I try to do the very simple Libet clock. All right, so first there's an EEG cap on your head, and it looks a little scary, but you can see these people are enjoying it. So maybe you can enjoy an imaginative one. Again, what's this doing? It's detecting the readiness potential. That's the electrical activity in your brain that causes a bodily movement. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to sit as you all are and place a hand on your knee and imagine that there's an EMG attached that's detecting the muscle fiber burst. And I want you to do something, but I also want you to think about how often you do this when you engaged in what activities you would describe as being ethical or voluntary. I want you to consciously scan or introspect and wait for an awareness of an urge, a tug, a desire, a wish, a conscious volition, or an intention to move your finger. Okay. You should also ask how many of you were doing that before you voluntarily came here tonight. I mean, some of you might have been coerced or compelled by some of the organizers, but <laughs> before you came tonight, before you got in a car or a bus, did you sit around and wait for this conscious urge that showed you you freely came here versus not? It's important as you come back to reflect on it, is this really what happens when you make a voluntary motor movement, or is this already a rather peculiar experimental setup? So imagine you're in, watch the dot go around the clock. We're gonna come back. And again, your arms hooked up to the CEG. And now I'm gonna give you these additional instructions. Okay, remember you were um, scanning inside for your conscious urge. Rest under your hands on your knees, wait for one complete revolution of the clock, and then perform a quick, abrupt, spontaneous flexion of your wrist or of your finger, okay? 
but one revolution has to happen. And then, very importantly, you have to make sure that flexing is spontaneous, okay? You can't pre-plan. So you can't let it go around once and go, I'm gonna move my finger when it's on the 15th. You can't do that, it has to be spontaneous in order for it to be capricious and free, all right? So wait for it to go around once, and again, you can't plan and you can't cause the urge. You need to wait and be aware of the urge of the volition of the choice. And once you're aware of your choice, then you can make the move. All right, as he says, let the urge to act appear on its own. At any time, without any pre-planning or concentration of when to act. Try to be spontaneous, all right? You need a will to be spontaneous and deciding when to perform each act. And this instruction is designed to elicit voluntary acts that are freely capricious in their origin. Okay, one more quote, just to say, I'm not making this up, this is what, how Libet described the experiment and how he describes in the paper itself reporting what they told the people who were participating. The subject was asked to note and later report the time of the appearance of his conscious awareness of wanting to perform a given self-initiated movement. The experience was also described as an urge or intention or decision to move, though, and this is an important point, the subjects usually settled for the words wanting or urge. All right, one last time. Remember, you need to report where is the dot when you felt the conscious urge to move and then move, okay? One whole revolution, don't plan. When you become aware of the urge, act on it. And hopefully my computer doesn't crash. <laughs> All right. And these are the results of this experiment. The results are, are quite robust, actually. These were the original results. The experiment has been done over and over. It's been highly refined in lots of ways. There are a lot of contemporary versions of this experiment that are being done, um, and they're, they're, they're more sophisticated than the version we just went through, but they're basically the same, and the results are pretty robust. I'm not gonna actually critique the results in terms of the timing, but what has happened is it turns out that very robustly, about 50, 550 milliseconds before the finger movement, there was the supplementary, um, the readiness potential detected in the brain. In second place was coming the actual conscious volition that becoming aware of the urge to move came in around 200 milliseconds before the movement, and then the movement at zero. Said otherwise, the readiness potential in the brain was detected about 550 milliseconds before the movement, and that means that it was about 350 milliseconds before the appearance of a reportable time for awareness of any subjective intention or wish to act. Libet concluded that the brain evidently decides to initiate, or at least prepare to initiate an act, at a time before there's any reportable subjective awareness that such a decision has taken place. It is concluded that cerebral initiation, even of a spontaneous voluntary act of the kind studied here, can, and usually does, begin unconsciously. So these were the robust experimental results that led 
and has led a lot of these other scientists and philosophers and um, popular talking heads to make claims that human beings don't have free will on the basis of neuroscience. There are other experiments as well, but these have been the key sort of um, benchmark neuroscience experiments. However, there are some very important caveats. Libet's been very careful and is very careful in his 1983 paper, the numerous experiments he did over the next few decades after that, and his final monograph, which he published, I think, somewhere around 2004. Um, he makes some very important qualifications. These are three of them. Libet didn't claim his experiments covered the whole range of voluntary actions enabled by free will. For example, Libet's experiments do not address non-motor voluntary actions, like deciding the next move in chess, planning one's day, or working on a math problem. So the kind of voluntary activity you might do, not when you've moved a chess piece, but when you're just sitting there and you're planning through it and you're thinking through it, and you're not yet trying to decide about how to move a chess piece, you're just deciding what your move will be, or sitting through and planning your day but not actually doing the things you're planning on doing. Libet was very clear. His experiment wasn't about that. It was about motor actions, okay? So he's not trying to say there is no free will in all these other cases. He's just trying to say the brain seems to initiate these motor movements. But then he even made further qualifications. Libet's experiments do not address pre-planned movements done for some reason, moral otherwise. Libet himself recognized most of the actions that are motor movements that we consider to be ethical or very important. Those are ones in which we have reasons for. Those are ones in which we plan. So he's just asking us to do this completely arbitrary finger movement for no purpose other than the purpose of doing the experiment. He's saying his experiments don't have anything to do with pre-planned movements, including the pre-planned movement of moving your finger at 15 rather than 30. His experiments aren't about that. So this has generated an important distinction in some of the literature that maybe we don't have free will for arbitrarily picking, but we do have free will for choosing. Perhaps that's a possible distinction. Then, interestingly enough, the third point is that Libet's experiments left open the possibility of vetoing the movements initiated non-consciously by the brain. So as Libet says here, there could be a conscious veto that aborts the performance even of the type of spontaneous self-initiated act under study here, to which some of the commentators said, well, it turns out there's no free will, but there is free won't. The idea is that you might be sitting there, you feel the urge to move your finger, and you disobeyed, you didn't follow the instructions, you just decided not to act on it. That's what he means by a kind of veto. So you might have the urge to eat, and then you go, no, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not gonna have anything more, no more dessert. So that's the idea of what he means by a veto. So to summarize, Libet claimed his experiments disproved free will, and it, that free will initiates spontaneous motor actions, but these experiments of his left untouched non-motor voluntary actions, rationally planning and choosing to perform movements, and free want, the ability to veto spontaneously um, brain-triggered movements. Now, over the last 30 years, there have been a lot of different kind of philosophical and scientific ways of engaging with these. So just to summarize, in that book that I mentioned earlier by Alfred Miele on free will, we'll go through a lot more of these than I will. So there have been 
various approaches philosophically which have said this is a confused or problematic concept of free will, of the voluntary, of what intention, of what desire means in our day-to-day -day lives. That's the kind of approach that I'm going to take later on in this, in this talk. Others have said that there's lots of different interpretations of the data. Some have said that there's a lot of overgeneralizations, and this has actually been very important. A lot of them have ignored those three caveats that Libet gave. So they said Libet has disproven free will, and actually when I was attending neurobiology lectures at the University of Cambridge, the lecturer, when he came to motor movements, referred to the lectures of Libet and said, Libet disproved free will which is surprising for someone who knows way more than I do about the motor movements and neurobiology, had just kind of blown over the last page and a half of Libet's experiments, which made very clearly that he wasn't making this enormous charge. So even serious, competent scientists often misrepresent Libet's own conclusions, which were not objecting to free will in total, but just an objection to these spontaneous, non-planned motor movements. There have also been a lot of experimental interrogations and questionings about issues having to do with how you can consciously report in time accurately. It seems to be there's a lot of time that's missing because from the time you see the thing on the clock to your ability to becoming aware of it, to your be able to consciously report where on the clock the dot was when you became aware of the conscious. So there have been issues with that. And some of the more recent versions of the experiment have found clever ways of eliminating that. And then there have been some important analyses of the statistics involved to argue that there's not anything significant and there's actually a lot of misrepresentation of some of the data. But like I said, I'm gonna look more um, at philosophical problems. And here I wanna distinguish two different approaches to the philosophical problems. So one approach will endorse the concept of free will that's operationalized in the Libet experiment. So the Alfred Melee book that I mentioned before that and basically most philosophical approaches that critique Libet, they tend to think Libet has the right idea about free will, but there's just some problems with the experiment or problems with the interpretation. So they take for granted that the experiments really do concern the phenomenon we want to call free will. It's just there's some other issues. But I'm going to take in this talk a second approach. I'm going to reject the concept of free will that he's operationalizing in these experiments. So from this approach, I contend that these experiments, they have absolutely nothing to do with free will. They do have something to do with some type of phenomenon that we experience, but it's very difficult to conceptually corner the phenomenon of free will. We use a lot of different kind of concepts, and philosophers have lots of concepts for trying to corner the phenomenon of free will. But I'm saying Libet thought he was cornering free will with his concepts of free will, but he was actually mistakenly cornering something else that's not free will at all. So that's what I'm going to try to convince you of. In fact, what he was cornering was not free will, but something more like inhibiting a sneeze. That's the kind of phenomenon that Libet was, or inhibiting a cough too, that would be another example. Um, he's trying to corner what goes on psychologically when we try to inhibit something that emerges within us that we don't have any control over. That's the kind of phenomenon that, that Libet has mistakenly described as free will. Now I'm going to go over some of these detailed issues rather quickly, but the first thing we need to do is step back from all of this complicated theory and try to ask the question of why do we think we have free will in the first place? 
And I'm contending the reason why we think we have free will first starts with the kind of actions that we engage in that we want to call voluntary. And so a careful, and we don't have time for this tonight, but a careful analysis of free will stops talking about free will for a moment and asks, why do we think we have an ability for free will? And we need to define that ability, that power of free will, by the kind of acts that we experience, the acts that we perform, the operations we perform. And once we've had a good handle on defining these different acts and operations, then we can define free will as distinct from others. So first we need to go through the really tricky, very difficult process of distinguishing and defining voluntary actions from involuntary actions, so types of like coercion, so the difference between me walking up on the stage versus the organizers dragging me up on the stage versus a type of non-voluntary psychological behavior, something that just happens. It's not something that's coercive, but it's also not the kind of thing that I maybe would have voluntary control over. So like feeling a pain of hunger would be an example of a non-voluntary action. But to understand voluntary, involuntary, non-voluntary psychological behavior, we can't just define these concepts in the abstract, just sort of sit back and think like philosophers like to do and just define them in the absence of a context. To really understand them, we have to define them ontogenically. We have to define them developmentally. So we have to think about the way in which they arise from diverse biological, psychological, and social developments of us as dependent rational animals. So how at different stages of life can we engage in different kinds of voluntary actions? How do we engage in different, or have occurred to us, different types of coercive, involuntary actions? And different psychological, biological, and social contexts are gonna make all of these show up in different ways. There's not a static, single concept of voluntary action that applies to us equally when we're infants and neonates, when we're adolescents, when we're reaching mature adulthood, when we're reaching our old age, when we have certain disabilities or illnesses or sicknesses. Voluntary action needs to be defined in this very dynamic, large spectrum kind of way. Just for an example, if we wanna think about the ontogeny or the development of voluntary psychological behavior, we need to start with a set of contrasts and think about human agency and voluntary action as it develops from a neonate into adulthood. So first we would start with just the difference with a neonate, an infant, a newborn, just simple sort of reflex actions, facial imitations, flailing and writhing, and the way in which this gradually is transformed into just mere controlled motor movements. So not just non-control, an absence of control, to a slow, just control of basic motor movements. And then gradually, they can have perceptual integration with the motor movements. So seeing something and being able to guide the motion of the hand towards that. And slowly we get more complicated types of motor movements coordinated with not just perceptual motions, but also motivations, emotions. These that are guiding and directing them. And we can gradually get more purposeful types and then purposeful types that have to do with obedience, or potty training, or these kinds of tasks that are real achievements early on in our life that we don't even think about their relevance anymore to the types of voluntary actions. And then, and only then, can we start talking about rationally purposeful activities that are normative, that are ethical, that are intentional. 
So you see the problem with a lot of philosophical ways of talking about free will is they start just at that last step. They first start talking about free will just as this fully integrated, rational, purposeful activity. But they're not thinking about the way in which we've gone through these developments. So as you can see, the concept of free will is actually really hard to get a handle on. And it's easy for us to conceal from view a lot of the other things. But even that wouldn't be enough for the concept of free will. We'd also need to do very careful studies of differences between humans and chimpanzees, dolphins, corvids, cephalopods, octopuses, and squids, and see how their types of purposeful voluntary action are really similar, but also very different in other ways from the rational voluntary actions of humans. So, as you can see, we're not going to get to the bottom of this, but the kind of concept of free will that I'm proposing is going to be very different than the one that's operationalized in these limited experiments. Since we don't have time to go through all the details, I just want to offer you a very sort of a shortcut way of thinking about some of them. There are a lot of problems with this, but it's a kind of a rough cartoon way of thinking about free will that's helpful, just to see how it's very different from the Libet kind. Now, I don't know what it would be in Portuguese, but I imagine you have active and passive verbs, and you often think about doing and happenings, and that's a helpful way of at least starting to think about the difference between voluntary actions from non-voluntary actions. So human actions are things we do as distinct from happenings or acts of a human. So the human actions are actions we do or we perform voluntarily versus acts of a human are acts that happen to us involuntarily or non-voluntarily. So things like feelings, urges, hunger, exhaustion, slipping, falling, being drugged somewhere, those are all things that happen to us, whereas voluntary actions are ones we do. A rough way of characterizing, we could say voluntary actions are actions we rationally control, that we do willingly or intentionally, we do them for reasons. They're things we can do or we can refrain from doing, and they're self-initiated or self-determined, and this is why we call them free. And we're in particular accountable or responsible for these kinds of actions. In a really terrific book on the philosophical foundations of neuroscience by um, Peter Hacker and Max Bennett, they write, a fully voluntary action is one which the agent controls its inception, so its start, its continuation, and its termination. Hence, sneezing, it's only partly voluntary, insofar as one can voluntarily inhibit a sneeze, but they can't initiate it directly. So let's go back now and start thinking about a comparison between the kind of account I've given and the kind of account that Libet has of free will. How important are conscious antecedents to voluntary intentional action? As Hacker writes, most voluntary actions and most intentional actions are not preceded by any kind of antecedent intention. One merely acts. So when you came in here tonight, did you have to wait for an intention to find a seat? Or did you just carry on a conversation with whoever you came in with and find your seat and you sat down and it was a voluntary action? Did you have to wait and be aware of the conscious intention to sit in this seat versus that seat? Or did you just sit down? Now sometimes you might pre-plan. You might have a favorite seat in the auditorium. You might know that that's somebody else's favorite seat so you don't sit in it. But oftentimes it's the case that that's not how it is. You just act without having to articulate in your mind ahead of time the reasons. You might give the reasons later, 
and that shows that it was a voluntary action. And if you don't have any reasons for acting, it might show that it wasn't a voluntary action. But on the count I'm putting forward, our voluntary actions don't require an antecedent, a prior conscious intention. To intact intentionally, as Hacker says, does not require the conscious formation of an antecedent intention any more than it requires an antecedent deliberation and decision. Because otherwise, we would have to, you know, to take a voluntary step, you'd have to think, okay, I'm going to raise my foot just this much, okay, do it, and now I'm going to just put my foot down. And of course, some people who have debilitating neurocognitive disorders, they actually do have to do that kind of thing in order to get, engage in a kind of conscious activity. But that's not a part of what's constitutive of an ordinary voluntary action. So what is free will? These free or voluntary actions are performed by humans in virtue of an ability or capacity we can call will or free will. So that whole range of actions that we've run through way too quickly of the difference between voluntary actions, involuntary actions, and the non-voluntary actions, free will is going to be defined in terms of ability for doing those free voluntary actions, not all those other ones. Okay? So what free will is on the count I'm giving is that free will is a power, or it's a capacity, in virtue of which humans are able to perform or do voluntary actions. In short, voluntary actions or doings are acts of free will. Involuntary happenings to humans are not acts of free will. So back to Libet. Recall for the Libet, he says, the subjects in the experiment were asked to choose to perform a motor act at a time the desire or the urge or the will should arise in them. They were also free not to act out any given urge or initial decision to act. Each subject was instructed to watch for and report the earliest appearance of the awareness in question. But if the account I've given so far is right, Feelings or urges of volition are neither necessary nor are they sufficient for any of our voluntary actions. And furthermore, such feelings and urges are not themselves, on the account I gave, human actions. Rather, these are occurrences to humans. So when you feel an itch arrive, that's not a paradigmatic case of an ethical or voluntary action. If you feel an itch or if you feel an urge to sneeze, that's just a happening. It's not one of these paradigmatic voluntary actions. So things like hunger, tiredness, bowel movements, the feeling of impending sneeze. Most people aren't out defending these as characteristically voluntary actions that you have control over. So as Hacker says, feeling an urge, for example, to sneeze just before one sneezes does not make the sneeze voluntary. Indeed, although normal human beings can voluntarily inhibit a sneeze, they cannot sneeze at will at all. Strikingly, then, Libet's theory would in effect assimilate all human voluntary action to the status of inhibited sneezes, or sneezes which one did not choose to inhibit. For in his view, all human movements are initiated by the brain before any awareness of a desire to move, and all that's left for voluntary control is inhibiting or permitting of the movement that's already underway. So, if I'm right, and it's contentious, but if I'm right about what you take and most people take to be paradigmatic voluntary actions, then these limit experiments just started with the wrong concept of free will and operationalized that. And they're not really experiments about free will at all. 
They're also not about free want. They're rather about urges or inclinations, conscious proposals or other happenings or acts of humans. And consequently, these experiments tell us nothing about voluntary human actions and the power of free will. So it shows how important it is to be clear and have good defense for the kind of concepts we're using in our experiments. Because what he's described as acts of free will turn out to be what I think on a reasonable counter case can be made aren't voluntary actions at all. So I'm going to end in just a second, but I want to not be completely dismissive. I want to give some suggestions or ideas of what neuroscience experiments on free will would look like given the kind of picture that I've articulated. And it's actually going to show some of the problems with the possibility of trying to disprove free will. Neuroscience can maybe show us a lot more about free will, but the possibility of a disproving free will is very unlikely. In contrast to Libet-style experiments, scientists would need to have more accurate descriptions of conscious voluntary actions, which really can carefully and meticulously distinguish between voluntary doings and involuntary happenings. And also in contrast to Libet-style experiments, they need to rule out, as any scientific experiment, it needs to rule out other variables that could be confounding factors. And what they need to rule out is this key feature about our voluntary actions, namely that intentional actions are often nested within other intentional actions. What I mean is, whenever we're doing something voluntary or intentionally, we're often also doing a host of other intentional things at the same moment. We're not just doing one thing voluntarily, we're doing one voluntary thing in order to do other voluntary things. So, I might be walking across the street, but why am I walking across the street? I'm not just walking across the street, I'm walking across the street to a cash machine to get money for a taxi. But I'm not just walking across the street in order to get cash from a cash machine, I'm simultaneously walking across the street to get money for a taxi, to get a taxi, to go to the airport. But I'm not just getting to the airport, I'm simultaneously also taking a flight to Lisbon in order so I can come here to give a talk. So as you, you see, that our actions are always nested within other actions. We're simultaneously doing certain proximate ends and actions for the sake of doing more distant proximate ends and actions. And that story of those distant ends is more complicated. I mean, it goes on and on. And this is just one single line. There's also a nexus of other intentional actions I'm also performing that veer off in a lot of other connections. And they intersect with the various intentions that all of you have, which are all converging right now on some moment of either paying attention or not paying attention, of being interested or not interested in a talk, of finding it agreeable, of not finding it agreeable. But that's connected with a host of other complex intentions that you're also all engaged in right now. So what was overlooked in the Libet experiment was a failure to control for this in the experiment itself. So what was happening with all of you when you were participating in my thought experiment and when Libet subjects were participating in their experiments? Well, they were intending to participate in Libet's experiment. They probably rearranged their schedule so that they could show up at the lab at a certain sort of time. And what did they do? They intended to follow the instructions that Libet gave them, just like all of you might have voluntarily decided, this is very silly, I'm not going to really do this, I'm not going to put my hand on my knee, I'm not going to look up to this clock. Or you might have, you know, been like, 
Libet's going to give you an Amazon card. It was 1980s, so he's not giving you an Amazon card. But if you're to do it today and you do a science experiment, you probably will get an Amazon card or maybe like a coupon for a pizza or something. Um, you have to keep in mind, most neuroscience experiments are done on 18 to 22-year-olds, and so this is highly motivating. But anyway, so you're intending to follow Libet's instructions, but that means you're intending to wait for an urge. You're voluntarily engaging in an action that you've maybe never performed in your life before, of sitting and waiting for an urge to move your wrist. But what Libet's experiment's not controlling for is that the subjects participating in his experiment, by voluntarily following his instructions, they might be voluntarily causing their brain to cause them to have certain awareness of a certain kind of urge. And they interpret that urge as a volition, as an act of free will, because Libet told them that this is an experiment that's related to this, or this is what a voluntary action is. And since I'm already intending to move my wrist, once I feel or become aware of an urge to move my wrist, I move my wrist after I become aware of this urge that I'm intending to wait for to occur to me. And so I intended to wait for a conscious urge to move my wrist, and when it arrived, I did it. An important feature for scientific experiments is that you can control all the causal variables. But the very experiment requires that Libet can't control for what other causal factors are involved by voluntarily following the instructions in the very experiment. So the Libet-style experiments fail to rule out the diverse ways our other intentions, for example, to follow the instructions of an experimenter, might prime and cause the readiness potential in our supplementary motor cortexes. So a lot more things. I invite lots of questions, and I hope I can answer them to the best of my ability. But what I've covered is just some of the skeptical claims, some of the extraordinary, and I think, given the kind of criticisms that have been leveled at these experiments, I think the very incautious, rather um, precarious and silly and dangerous claims of some that we don't have moral responsibility because neuroscience has shown that we don't have free will. These are really actually dangerous questions that we should give very strong reasons for showing that they're completely wrong about what the evidence of neuroscience is from. I went through and I looked at these Libet experiments, which are the most important ones that have been drawn on by some to defend the case that we don't have free will. And I've tried to show why the kind of philosophical concept we have about free will makes a big difference in how we run the experiments that we think are about different kinds of concepts of free will. So thank you very much for your attention.